James 5, beginning at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. In Luke 10, when Jesus sent out the 72 disciples, um, he gave them very specific instructions and he charged them with this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town, they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But what, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable in that day for Sodom than it was for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. So in the midst of giving very specific instruction to his followers before he sends them out two by two into a lost and dying world, Jesus seems to get to this place where he has, not in a sinful way, but an outburst of judgment against some of the very cities where he has already and will yet go and perform his miraculous works. He's not in Chorazin or Bethsaida when he pronounces these judgments, but that doesn't stop him from pronouncing them. Similarly, in the midst of a letter to Christian churches spread across the known world, while James has been giving really specific instruction to believers about what they should and should not be doing, He bursts into a pronouncement of judgment against the rich. Early on in our series in James, in chapter 1, we dealt with the rich and the poor because James makes mention of them in verses 9 through 11. It's James 1, 9 through 11. Some of you will remember that I illustrated the point that I was trying to make with the story of um, Eddie Hilsom 
who died at, in Auschwitz in the midst of the Holocaust. She entered uh, the following words in her diary, in her journal. She said, if a person has a rich inner life, it probably doesn't matter whether they are inside or outside the camp, meaning the concentration camp. The idea being that if someone has a rich inner life, it probably doesn't matter how prosperous they are. Right? You all remember this. So we said, so the, the, the poor should glory in the riches that they have in the grace of Jesus Christ and in the gospel. The rich should glory in the humility that they've cultivated as a result of the great leveling power of the gospel. In the case of James 5, I don't think James is talking to Christians. I'm pretty convinced he's writing to the rich outside of the church. The lost, dying, unbelieving rich are who he has in view here. What we have is a kind of outburst of judgment against those who oppress others with their wealth. It does not matter to me, and I don't think it should matter to all the commentators to whom it does matter. It doesn't matter to me whether these oppressive rich were among the readers of this letter at that time or not. I think that's irrelevant. I don't think it mattered to James when he wrote it. Christian, you're going to have to believe me at some point when I tell you that the promise of judgment is spoken for your comfort at times. When you come across passages like this in your Bible, instead of in classic Reformed Baptist fashion, figuring out how you perfectly fit the bill of the person that this is describing, stop and consider this. Perhaps there is someone unpenitent, indifferent to the gospel out there in the world who would benefit from hearing this warning, or maybe they wouldn't benefit at all. But it ought to comfort the heart of those who are oppressed when they hear that God sees it and we'll judge it. Two points then that I plan to make for today to start. First, the Bible nowhere, nowhere condemns wealth in and of itself. In fact, it's viewed as a blessing from God. Second, the wealthy as a social class are often guilty of exploiting and oppressing the poor and God reserves severe judgment for that evil. All right, so first, what does the Bible say about wealth? Let's look at three passages quickly, or six, depending on how you break it down. Psalm 112, <clears throat> we'll start with one through three. Praise the Lord. This is Psalm 112, verse one. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. To be clear, I'm not, this is not the beginning of my descent into the faith prosperity movement, okay? I'm not saying that this is prescriptive. I don't think the Bible is saying, if you are righteous, you will be rich. That's not what's communicated here. However, if the scripture suggests that sufficiency and riches are in the house of the righteous, you'd be hard pressed to make the case that having a lot of money is the same as being in sin. 
Okay, Psalm 112, 5, so just bounce down a couple of verses. It's well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. So the characteristic of the wealthy, righteous man is that he is, is, that he is generous in his dealings. There's gross disparity in the witness of a person who is cutthroat in their business dealings while claiming to walk with Jesus. Listen, this is so important. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded than be known as a Christian who messes people over? I understand. You're after a good deal. You're trying to be frugal. You're trying to be responsible with what God has entrusted to you. But Christians, we should not have reputations as people who... who are just looking for the cheapest deal possible. We ought to be trying to bless those who we employ. It is a signal of a good Christian countenance and soul that a man who has money is generous with it. Verse nine, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wealthy, righteous person is charitable. There's a, there's a critical distinction, and we're going to make this more vivid when we return to James 5 in a few minutes. Between charity and oppression, right? Huge difference between those two things. But before we really get into that, what I want to do is divert to Luke 21, because what all the people that uh, consider themselves poor in the room are doing right now is going, that's right, wealthy people should be more charitable. Luke 21, beginning at verse 1. Jesus looked up. And saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Everyone can be charitable. And God sees what men do not see. What men are ignorant of, God is aware of. This has to be said because those of us who are, you know, scraping by month to month are tempted to believe that it is the responsibility only of the wealthy to be charitable. Because, I mean, what difference is my pitiful offering really going to make in the big scheme of things? Also, this is not a sermon on tithing, so relax. <laughs> Proverbs 10, 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Are you walking with God? Do you have some semblance of a relationship with Jesus Christ that drives you into Christian service, into Christian fellowship, and into prayer and study of the scriptures on a somewhat regular basis? Yes or no? If you do, if those things are true of you in measure, Listen to this verse again, Proverbs 10, 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. How dumb is it to sit and look at your full bank account and think, this is God judging me. 
I'm not playing games with languages either. The original word in the Hebrew is ashar, which translates to become rich. It's not, <clears throat> it's not clever English. <laughs> the blessing of the Lord makes one to become rich. And it's always in reference to money when this word is used. So I, I agree, yeah, rich in lots of things. Rich in, I have a richer life. I have a richer relationship with my wife. All that's true, but this is talking about money. If you're walking with God and you have money, that's his blessing. 1 Timothy 6, 17, 18, and 19. As for the rich in this present age, you're all like, yeah, here we go. This is... This is what we're waiting for. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So a third time, riches are not automatically evil. The use of riches can be evil, amen? Yeah. Or it can be righteous. The riches themselves, I think, are morally neutral. This is the case that I'm trying to make. Now, what does God say to those who use their wealth to oppress others? Three things. If you're taking notes, write these down. If nobody in here ever takes notes... You should let me know so that I stop advising you to write things down. What does God say to those who use their wealth to oppress others? Now, if it helps you like it helps me to make scriptural application whilst I'm a tad angry, then get in your head whoever it is that you think needs to be dealt with by God for oppressing others with their wealth. I would say you could put up a poster of all the members of the Senate and Congress, throw a dart, and whichever one it hits, you got a good shot. This is someone who oppresses others with their wealth. Just my opinion. That's not in here. That's just me talking, all right? And that's all I'm going to say about it. And whoever you need me to be like, except for them, then just pretend I said that. What does God say to those who use their wealth to oppress others? Three things. First, he is aware. Second, he hates oppression and injustice. Third, he will judge oppression and injustice. So Proverbs twenty-two sixteen says, Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or give to the rich will only come to poverty. Micah 2, 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, and when the morning dawns, they perform it, because it's in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. I don't know about you all, but I'm a little tired of people that have private jets telling me that I'm consuming too much false fuel, right? They devise wickedness in their beds and they have the power to bring it to pass. 
And whoever you think I shouldn't be attacking, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about somebody else. James 5, 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. When you first crack open James 5, it's a bit like a gut punch to all of us who have central air conditioning, right? Oh, I'm rich too. I got to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon me. The little treasures and knickknacks that I hold on to that I enjoy are going to testify against me. I'm going to hell because I have a wrath. All right, it's February, so I realize once again, this is the low-hanging fruit. But I don't know where else to go to make this illustration. February is, as we all know, Black History Month. It's a shame that it's February because there's something of a slight in that, isn't there? It's the shortest month. Anyway, from 1936 to 1938, as part of the New Deal, a program was developed called the Federal Writers Project. The goal of this project was to collect the oral histories of thousands of African Americans who were part of the last generation to experience slavery in the United States. The Federal Writers Project Ex-Slaves Narratives produced tens of thousands of pages of, of interviews and hundreds and hundreds of photographs. This is the largest and perhaps the most important archive of testimony from a formerly enslaved people in history. You can read these testimonies and look at the pictures at the Library of Congress from the comfort of your own home, just go to loc.gov in the top right hand corner of the page, search Federal Writing Project Slaves Narratives. Let me just share one with you from a 70 year, uh, 74 year old woman named Laura Abramson in Holly Grove, Arkansas. And I've tried to like translate and update the language a little bit Number one, so as not to give offense because some of what's used here is, would have been okay back then, not so much anymore, right? And I also don't want to read this as though I'm impersonating a person of color. So I'm, I'm going to read it like it's me, but know that the, I didn't come up with this. My mama was named Eloise Rogers. She was born in Missouri. She was sold and bought to three or four miles from Brownsville, Tennessee. Alex Rogers bought her and my papa. She had been a house girl and well cared for. and She never got in contact with her folks no more after she was sold. She was a dark woman. Papa was a ginger cake colored man. Mama 
talked like Alec Rogers had four or five hundred acres of land and lots of slaves to work it. She said he had a cotton factory at Brownsville. Mistress Barbara Ann was his wife. They had two boys and three girls. One boy, George, went plumb crazy and outlived them all. The other boy died early. Alex Rogers got my papa in Richmond, Virginia. He was took out of a gang. We had a big family. I have eight sisters and a brother. Pa says one day they strapped him down at the carriage house and gave him 500 lashes. He said they have salt and black pepper mixed up in an old bucket, put it all on flesh, cut up with a rag tied on a stick mop. Alex Rogers had a slave to put it on the place they whooped. The Lord puts up with such wrongdoings and then he comes and rectifies it. He does it that very way. Pa said they started to whoop him at the gin house. He was sort of a favorite. He cut up about it. That didn't make no difference. Somehow they scared him up, but he didn't get whipped that time. They fed good on Alex Rogers' place. They'd buy a barrel of coffee, a barrel of molasses, a barrel of sugar, some great big barrels. Alex Rogers wasn't a good man. He'd tell them to steal a hog and get home with it. If they catch you over there, they'll whip you. He'd help eat hogs they'd steal. One time Papa was working on the roads. He was hired out. The neighbor man and road man was fixing up their own food while Pa pretty nigh starved on that road work. Mama and Papa spoke like they was mighty glad to get set free. Some believed they'd get freedom and others didn't. They had places they gathered and prayed for freedom. They stole out in some of their houses and turned a wash pot down at the door. Another white man, not Alex Rogers, told Mama and Papa and a heap of others they was free while they were out in the field working. She say they gate and had a regular ball in the field. They cried and laughed and hollered and danced. Lots of them run off from that place as soon as the man told them. My folks stayed that year and another year. What has I been doing? You ask me, is I been doing? What ain't I been doing more like it? I raised 15 of my own children. I got four living. I live in with one right here in this house with me now. I worked on the farm pretty much all my life. I come to this place, wild honey it was. I come in 1901, heap of changes since then. Present times, not as much union amongst the young black and white as amongst the old black and white. They're growing apart. Nobody got nothing to give, no work. I used to go buy secondhand clothes to do my little children a year for little or nothing. Won't sell them now or give them away neither. They don't work hard as they used to. They say they don't get nothing from it. They don't want to work. Time's harder in winter because it's cold and things to eat get killed out. I can meat, we dry beef. In town, this Nickelodeon playing wild and young colored folks, these seabird music boxes play all kinds of songs. Folks used to stay home Saturday nights. Too much running around, excitement and wickedness in the world now. This generation is the worst one. They're trying to cat the Big Apple dance when we old folks used to be down singing and praying. Because this is a wicked age. Times is bad and hard. Well, let's ask four questions of ourselves so that we can make some kind of application rightly from this text. Question one. Do you have more than you can actually use 
and yet hoard it from others who have need. Uh, James 5, 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. The particular narrative that I shared doesn't make special mention of the poverty that American slaves lived in, but we've all seen the plantation owners' houses, which still stand to this day. At least we've seen pictures of them. And by contrast, many slaves lived in little more than mud huts. Have you cheated people out of what is owed to them? Verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It makes you wonder how this country operated with Bibles on every shelf from its inception until 1865, doesn't it? How do you live in a house of opulence with people that belong to you living in squalor a block away? And I say 1865 because that's when the Emancipation Proclamation happened, but let's be real, they were still redlining in the 80s and 90s. There's a residual guilt on this country for slavery, but not nearly as potent as the guilt on this nation for her present evils. We'll get to that in a moment. Question three, have you watched injustice and oppression with indifference? Verse five, you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. I'm sure Laura's wasn't the only father who was a slave who worked in the heat while his masters feasted, right? Safe assumption, that's not the only time that ever happened. Question four, have you condemned, slandered, or murdered the innocent? Verse six, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So these four things, hoarding, from the needy, cheating the worker, indifference to oppression, and the murder of the innocent are never unnoticed by God. He sees it. There is, to be sure, a judgment coming for those who engage in such evil, but we'll have to talk about that next week. Let me say two things in closing. First of all, this is an odd sermon to preach. I am not a social justice warrior. I do not believe that social justice would cure all that ails our culture. However, I do believe it's incumbent on me as a pastor to point some things out to us, all of us as a baby church in an affluent community. We need to open our eyes and broaden our awareness of the suffering that goes on in our own metro area. Amen? Of course, we don't want to be a church that cheats the laborers or ignores oppression or murders the innocent or hoards our resources, right? February 16th, our church is going to feed the staff of this school. 
Carrie Viles has been tasked with organizing it. But we really need to, to seek to bless these teachers and staff members because I want this community to know that Springfield Baptist cares about them. And to some degree, that means we need to open our wallet as a congregation. Now you might say, some of you, already, you just said this in your head and I'm gonna nail you for it right now. You'll be like, oops. You just said in your head and heart, you were like, ooh, that's big of us. We're gonna feed the wealthy staff of the high school, right? Listen, you, you don't know, you can't know, I don't know and I can't know to what degree the staff in this high school have suffered in the last year. I don't know. Divorce, inflation, financial difficulty that comes out of nowhere. Like, I'm guessing some of them have marital problems. Their own kids that they're struggling with, exhaustion, debt, inflation, the stress of teaching in 2023, being worn out with dealing with teenagers. Folks on staff here have certainly lost loved ones in the last year, wrecked their cars, gotten horrible news they didn't expect, and all of them could use some encouragement. I want us to remember that this is how we get remembered when they need a friend. Just do something nice for somebody. That's how I want us to be remembered in this community. Let's bless them as best we can. I'm suggesting that we have the opportunity to do the opposite of the thing that God hates. Let's not hoard our resources. I would very much like it if Carrie was guilted out of cooking anything herself because she has to figure out a way to spend all this money we've come up with. Does that make sense? I would love that. So that's first. This is second. Laura Abramson said a line in the middle of her narrative. The Lord puts up with such wrongdoings and then he comes and rectifies it. He does that very way. She's exactly right. And to prove it, the central icon of the Christian church is the most gruesome capital punishment device that existed 2,000 years ago. Jesus hung on a cross because sinners love murdering the innocent. Fact. It's what we do. However, the cross is empty. Somebody should tell our Catholic brothers and sisters. The cross is empty as is the tomb where they laid his body after he died. And these vacancies are signs of the judgment which is coming for all who do not believe the gospel. Those who go on sinning because they haven't experienced the immediate consequences of their sin begin to think there is no judgment and they are mistaken. Romans 2 5 says this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God is designed to bring you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. I didn't bother looking up Alex Rogers. Um, I don't know what became of the man who owned Laura Abramson and her parents. Maybe he repented of his evil after his slaves were freed. 
Regardless, the evil that he did and all of those who participated in the wretched act of enslavement in America, they either repented or they are in hell suffering the judgment for their sin. If you're anything like me, you occasionally read the news on accident. Um, I think it was halfway through the pandemic. Um, I shouldn't do that. I think it was halfway through the pandemic when I decided I'd had enough and just quit watching. Quit reading, quit going to the websites. Every now and then I accidentally read it. Something pop up. Turns out our government is corrupt, unjust, and oppressive. Shocking, right? Our nation has made a pastime out of murdering the innocent. America kills the entire population of Omaha and Lincoln put together every year in unborn babies. Judgment is coming because God hates these things. Hoarding wealth while the needy suffer, cheating the worker, oppressing the poor or being indifferent to oppression, murdering the innocent. God hates these things. And he sees it when it's happening. Do we really think that this country is somehow above or beyond the reach of the judgment of God? You think eggs are expensive now. What if he removes the restraint and just allows nature to take its course in this country and us to begin to reap the whirlwind that we've invited on ourselves through our evil and wicked ways? It didn't stop with slavery. We've figured out more clever ways to hoard wealth we figured out more clever ways to cheat the worker. We figured out more clever ways to do oppression and murder of the innocent. But it didn't stop. What that suggests to me is that as a church, we should look drastically different than the culture around us. It stands to reason, doesn't it? I'm not going to do oppression and murder and wealth hoarding, then I ought to look different than my neighbors who are lost and dying. Second, let's start inviting people to come and hear the gospel. Thought about this while I was banging out this outline yesterday. Like, what will I do if there's 30 or 40 visitors tomorrow morning. Will I preach this sermon? How uncomfortable will you make everybody, James? What does it say? Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That is a warning. 
Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. That's another warning. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's an accusation. God, all through this book, gives warnings and accusations followed by an invitation to repent, to turn away from sin, to embrace by faith the one who can clean you of that sin. Here's what I want us to do as a church. I want us to pray for a new great awakening and do all that we can as a church to bring about repentance and faith in our community and in our culture. But that ain't gonna happen if we don't do it individually too. Got to turn away from sin. And here's what you'll find. However guilty you are, however much blood is on your hands, if you confess, he is faithful. Come on. If you confess, he is faithful. You confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let me pray.